Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 22, A Call to Arms. On January 8, 1934, the beginning of Hitler's second year in power, a gathering of men made up of Prussian statistical associates, several Nazi party leaders in full-dress uniform, and Dehomag officials in their best suits, came together to celebrate a very important day for Berlin and Nazi Germany. These men were here to take part in the opening of the first German factory to produce Hollerith machines. No more wasting priceless Reich resources on American products. But this event meant different things to different people. For the Berliners, it meant jobs, and therefore security for their families. For the men in uniform, it meant that more and more of German life, personal and professional, could be brought under control. With each business that used Dehomag's tabulated machines, that much more of German life was organized, regulated, controlled, and harnessed. But for what? That the uniformed men did not feel the Berliners, or German people in general, needed to know. As many information announcements ended with, before a film or over the radio, quote, that's all you need to know, unquote. A few men spoke at this opening ceremony. Heidinger, the main German administrator at Dehomag, was one of them. When his turn came, he compared what Dehomag was doing for Germany to what a doctor does for the human body. Quote, the physician examines the human body and determines whether all organs are working to the benefit of the entire organism. We are very much like the physician in that we dissect cell by cell the German cultural body. We report every individual characteristic on a little card. We are proud that we may assist in such a task, a task that provides our nation's physician, meaning Hitler, with the material he needs for his examination. Hail to our German people and to Fuhrer. Unquote. With this, everyone left the massive structure at Berlin's Alexanderplatz and drove to the new factory settled among the quiet section of Berlin, at Lichterfeld. There, more speeches were given, including one from Thomas Watson's representative, Walter Jones, who was the Paris base manager for all European operations. Jones, one day, would be the chairman of IBM Canada. He spoke for Mr. Watson in New York of how impressed the head of IBM was with Germany's economic recovery and the country's vision in embracing Hollerith tabulating technology. The celebration opening came to an end with a military band and the crowd shouting Sieg Heil over and over and over. Then everyone went back to where they belonged. The onlookers back to work or home, the men in uniform back to their staffs and offices, the Dehomag workers back to their stations or assembly lines. And as the professional day came to an end, as all those people went home, as the offices were closed down for the night, one place stayed lit and received the new arrivals of a second shift and later a third shift. And that place was the new Dehomag factory. Now that it was ready for work, work it would, nonstop, around the clock. The nation's physician wanted to know where all the flaws were within the body politic of Germany, and the new factory would tell him. Then the physician could remove the country's affliction.
And so the Jews were located city by city, job by job, name by name. Those who had been captured thus far were marched through the streets, abused verbally and physically by stormtroopers. But what awaited them at the end of their march was much worse. And various governmental bodies, feeling the urgency emanating from the Führer's office, pressed on, much like the Hollerth machines, with passing laws and decrees, removing Jews from their jobs, their professions, their means of taking care of their families. This central tenet of the Nazi party would not know rest. But Hollerith technology was doing more than locating enemies of the state. It was helping Nazi Germany with its struggle against the rest of the world. As stories got out about what was happening within the country, many other countries were organizing against and boycotting products and services from Germany. But the beleaguered German nation-state was fighting back with its punch card system. At first, major industries like Krupp in Essen, IG Farben in Frankfurt, Siemens in Berlin, Opel in Ruschelsheim, Daimler-Benz in Stuttgart, and Woolworth in Berlin used the machines to organize their work processes and workforce. Then they happily discovered the little pieces of metal, wiring, and cards could do so much more. They could analyze and manage. And with this efficiency tool, these companies slashed their operating expenses, moved significant numbers of staff from processing information to service and sales. And soon, this level of coordination was available to and foisted upon smaller and smaller businesses. The government wanted it, and Dehomog offered ways for smaller companies to afford it. Soon, many more businesses and Germany's people came under the Nazi government's watchful eyes, because the information Dehomog had access to was also sent to Berlin. All companies, regardless of size, were made to toe the line and work toward a national government standard, or Gleichschaltung, or total central coordination. The world was against Nazi Germany, but the Nazis were bringing the country together, becoming leaner, becoming centralized, and pointed at a specific goal. The national government, doing Hitler's bidding, was steering the country towards a war footing. The German people were benefiting as well, more citizens were hired by Dehomag to build the machines, and more people still were brought on to help translate and process the ever-increasing information flowing in as more businesses used the tabulating process. Reports, reports, and more reports were needed. Questions had to be answered, information had to be analyzed, and new goals set. All this while the Nazi hierarchy played the part of puppet master. But there was a third group that benefited from this explosion of information gathering and organization. And those individuals represented a new industry. And that was race science. Before Hitler came to power, his and others' theories were bandied about as to not only how was the Jewish presence in Germany a threat to the country, but what constituted a Jew. Was it a religious practice or was it in the blood? To the detriment of all Jews living in Germany, the final arbiter, Hitler and his cohorts, determined blood was the dominating factor. That someone had converted to Christianity or abandoned their faith did not alter what they were, a Jew, and so an enemy of the state. 
But now that Hitler was in power, different organizations or men wanted state sponsorship, so pushed forward new and ever unscientific theories about what determined who was Jewish. Basically, the wackos came out in force, and soon their views dominated the witch hunts. But then, reality stepped in and handed all those trying to keep pace with Hitler a devastating setback. The census taken in 1933, the first year Hitler was chancellor, found just over 50,000 less Jews living in Germany compared to the 1925 census. Had that many really seen the writing on the wall and left the country, or converted, or abandoned their faith? Some believe this. Others thought that it showed there was more work to do. But then something unexpected happened. The more the different agencies attempted to create a system that determined who was Jewish, the more the complexity of the problem arose. Strange mathematical formulas were put forth. Physical characteristics were conjured up that supposedly determined the level of Aryanness, or the lack thereof, of a person. Because as Hitler was getting his footing that first year, undesirables were labeled non-Aryan. But it wouldn't be long before the pretense could be dropped and the word Jew inserted. But for now, the problem of identification was seen as multifaceted. Dehomog's abilities were limited to the degree it received accurate information. Someone's great-grandparent could have easily have been a non-practicing Jew, which meant the chances of anyone being fully Jewish, half-Jewish, or quarter-Jewish was quite possible. And as all these categories were enough to have you removed from a normal life within Nazi Germany, everyone suddenly felt compelled to prove they weren't Jewish. And as so many Nazi organizations were filled with immoral men out for themselves, and competition became a way of life, all one had to do was accuse an enemy of being partially Jewish. The onus was now on them to prove they were of pure Aryan blood. And really, who could rightly claim that? And there were so many organizations one would have to convince so as to not end up in a concentration camp. The Führer's office ran the Race Political Office. The SS ran the Reich Race and Settlement Office. The Justice Ministry had one of its lower courts rule on questions of hereditary health. Goebbels' Ministry of Propaganda had a department for Jewish health. The Labor Ministry had their own unemployment offices look into matters of accused Jews and non-Aryans. This does not even take into account the numerous advisory bureaus on race that acted as consultants for these various departments, branches, and ministries. It was truly a multi-ringed circus. However, the losers were always fed to the lions. But for Dehomag, all this... This explosion of overlapping agencies, all trying to work out the Jewish problem, meant profits. As all these agencies used Halder's technology, as was deemed compulsory by Berlin. But in time, efficiency demanded that only one body have the final say in matters of determining who was Jewish. Its name changed several times, but in the end, the Reichsumpanat or Reich family office, was handed the coveted responsibility. Still, there would be others who held a dominant position of the problem, or in this case, the solution to the Jewish question, 
One such was a corporal who had just transferred from the Dachau concentration camp and now worked for the SD in its Berlin office. His enthusiasm for working with lists and finding the hidden Jews therein impressed his superiors. He was a man on his way up, and his name was Adolf Eichmann. But for now, the Jewish question was just a part of a larger quest. That quest was human perfection. The Nazis believed that a pure German or Aryan was tall, blonde, and had blue eyes. Their intelligence and physical abilities were superior to all else. But it was the mixing with other bloodlines that had spoiled this once great and pure race. And as the Third Reich was to last for a thousand years, the idea was to, starting now, weed out the polluting bloodlines or anyone else that kept the Aryans from perfection. Jews, the mentally ill, the diseased, the handicapped, homosexuals, and criminals, and anyone else the Nazis did not want contaminating their bloodline had to be prevented from producing offspring. So, as the second year of Hitler's time as leader came to be, information was gathered from doctor's offices, insurance companies, and other medical files, and fed into the Hollerth machines. These genetic undesirables were hunted down, just like the Jews. However, these afflicted Aryans deserved better treatment than the Jews. They were not to be killed outright. Instead, they would go free, once their ability to reproduce was removed through forced sterilization. This latest crime against humanity was carried out legally under Nazi law. Decrees were passed that forced doctors to fill out forms about their patient's health, and anyone found unfit by the state, i.e. a drain on the state's resources, by having to provide individual care for the mentally or physically handicapped, were to be sterilized. Just as pseudo-intellectuals had given birth to ideas about who were the Jews and how to find them, others were now giving voice to the idea that a man was only as good as his contribution to the state. Nazi Germany was being besieged on all sides. The state must take whatever steps it needed to, to be victorious in the struggle. But as the sterilizations began, this idea, already considered extreme by some Germans, who knew better than to protest publicly, was taken to a whole new level. Soon, socially undesirable persons were forced to go sterilization. Those that were seen as misfits or lazy or did not meet the minimum folksish behavior were also gathered up. The largest number for this group, besides the Jews, were those that seemed to be, quote, the work shy, unquote. And with Hollow Earth machines crunching the numbers, analyzing the information it was given, 62,000 forced sterilizations were conducted in 1934. 1935 saw almost 72,000 more. Again, all this translated into huge profits for Deha Mag and IBM. The former were now building their own Hollerith punch card machines, but the punch cards themselves still came from New York, which meant the new factory in Lecterfield could not be allowed to run out of cards, or the entire process would come to a complete stop. So it was decided that a six-month supply must always be kept on hand. This was the equivalent of 55 full railroad cars. 
Equally impressive was the one million U.S. dollars in profits Dehelmag had made during the first year that Hitler came to power. But this was a double-edged sword. The Nazi state frowned on large profits, especially by companies with some foreign owners, as everyone was supposed to be working toward the betterment of the state. Also, German currency leaving the country brought a frown to Nazi officials, which was never good for one's health. All this meant that Heidinger could receive his end-of-year bonus, but Watson in New York could not. And Watson didn't like this, and he always played hardball. So, as the largest stockholder, Watson deemed that no one would receive a bonus. This, of course, enraged Heidinger. He was looking forward to his half-million Reichmark payment as an end-of-year bonus. The war for the money made by IBM and its subsidiary in Germany had just reached another level. So, off went the seething German businessmen to the Nazi tax authorities and explained how IBM had been shuffling money around in order to avoid paying taxes and other duties to the Nazi government. This quickly brought a judgment by the Nazi government of a half million dollars. New York was shocked and started the process of arguing and explaining why this incredible amount should not be paid. But then Heidinger stepped in, negotiated a better deal for the tax assessment, and the money was paid. New York and Watson had just learned another lesson. But there were other battles besides those between the corporate giant in the U.S. and their leading company in Nazi Germany. The Nazi government was also battling the German housewife, or Hausfraus. Outside larger cities, Jewish merchants were not under the same extreme treatment. They had to be careful to keep their heads down, but certainly received less abuse for now. And during this time, the German wives who had dealt with these merchants still trusted them and liked their services and discounts that they received. Because times were still hard for these rural people, no matter what grand statements came out of Berlin. So the husband would listen to a radio program or attend a meeting and then sternly tell his Frau not to use Jewish merchants. The wife would say, ja, and nod. Then, as the husband went to work the next day, the lady of the house, still trying to make ends meet, would go to her trusted merchant. This practice was discovered by local Nazi officials, and soon classes were set up for housewives to attend that explained why they should not and could not use the services of this particular group. After all, it was explained, the Jews were known rapists and used money as a way to control the community and the country, and the world, if given half a chance. Still, the wives, looking at their expenses, persisted. This was followed by new decrees that said husbands did not have to pay the bills that came from Jewish merchants if their wives continued using their services. This battle, though less dramatic than the one between Watson and Heidinger, or the one that was coming between Germany and Poland, continued on. Brown shirts had to be placed in front of Jewish shops in order to stop the women from shopping there. This and other steps taken would eventually win the day for the Nazis. But the problem was, again, even for these rural Nazi agents, who exactly were the Jews? How could one tell if they didn't demonstrate it or admit to their practice? 
Again, in the big cities where troops could be sent out to force citizens to take the census, that information could be analyzed by the Hollerth machines and action taken. But as for everywhere else, the country was just too big. There were too many people. What was needed was a clear definition of what made a person Jewish. And Hitler wanted that answer, especially before the Nuremberg rally that was to be held that September 1935. Nuremberg was considered the birthplace of the Nazi party, and as such would host the Nazi party rally, attended by all the major players within the party. There were to be a series of speeches of all the great things the party had done for its people, and how together the party and people were standing up for German rights and steering the country on their path to greatness. On September 10, 1935, Hitler landed in Nuremberg and was driven to the stadium, the people throwing flowers under the tires of his oncoming Mercedes. Now that the Fuhrer was in town, the party day celebrations could begin. But behind that bulletproof glass, his car surrounded by his trusted SS bodyguard, the man in the back seat was anxious. For the last year and a half, he had been receiving reports about what Holler's technology had done for his chief endeavor, the eradication of the Jewish menace. But it wasn't enough. The entire process was being held up by the fact that a straightforward and correct formula had not yet been devised to help the little machines find every Jew within Germany. It was the last piece of the puzzle. But I think it's worth stepping outside of our story for a moment and remember that Adolf Hitler, the man, really believed his own propaganda. In his mind, the German Aryans were really the chosen people to rule the earth. They really were superior to all else, and they deserved their place on top. That the Jewish race really was holding the German people back from their greatness had, in fact, enslaved the real masters of Germany with their control of money. From the bankers to the pawn shop owners, they must literally be removed from the world forever. This was his goal, his quest, his reason for being born, his reason for coming to power. So, as impressive as the Hollerith machines were, as much as they had done in Prussia, it wasn't enough. Hitler's fear of the Jew what they could do and had done to Germany was real, and that fear, though rigidly controlled, prompted him to tell his government officials on September 13, 1935, that he wanted, in two days, to make an announcement at the end of the Nuremberg rally of his sweeping program that would oust the Jew from German life forever. Naturally, the national government went into a panic. Every important person from the interior ministry flew or drove to the city. Following them were hundreds, if not thousands, of those advisors from committees on the Jewish question. Meetings lasted all night. Draft after draft was composed, edited, trashed, and began anew. What emerged were two decrees that would change Germany and the world forever. Yet, these two laws still had that fundamental flaw. Within the statements that stripped Jews of their German citizenship, thus denying them any rights, there still lacked a mathematical formula that answered the question, who was Jewish? Which meant the Hollerth machines 
could not be totally effective in their job. Still, the degrees were bad enough. The first one, announced by Hitler, was called the Law for the Protection of German Blood. The other, the Reich Citizenship's Law. Together, these decrees removed German citizenship from all Jews. The word Jew was specifically used, whereas before it had always been non-Aryan. Also, Jews were no longer allowed to marry Aryans, nor could the two groups engage in sex. Next, Jews were no longer allowed to employ any Aryan women under the age of 45, lest they rape or seduce them, the result being another half-blooded bastard. And finally, trying to get around the formula problem, these laws applied to all Jews. Full Jews, half-Jews, quarter-Jews, even sixteenth-Jews. The lawmakers not only dodged the problem here, but also pleased Hitler in the process with this last bit. Finally, Hitler had his law. He had the beginning of the end of the Jew. He would make his speech, stir his people to heights of excitement, and tell them of his plan to rid Germany of the Jew. And, as he had the 600 members of the Reichstag in attendance, they would ratify these decrees this very night. Germany, the Jews within Germany, and the world at large was put on notice. Hitler was fulfilling his destiny.